Psalm 1. We've been reading through the Psalms for several years now, and this morning we are beginning our first sermon series in the book of Psalm. We're beginning with Psalm 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come now to the preaching of your word, we pray that you will remove all distractions. Every other thoughts that we may have had, even good thoughts, Father, we pray that you will remove everything and fill us now with your presence, with your truth. God, open our eyes to see Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. God, open our ears to what you have to say to us this morning. May your people be strengthened through the preaching of your word. And may anyone who does not know you, may you use this day to call them by name and bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's in your name I pray. Amen. And like I said a moment ago, this morning we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is sometimes, maybe you've heard it called the Psalter. That is an older English word for the Psalms. The Psalms is a book of praises and songs and prayers to God. It's considered the original hymnal of God's people. And it's sort of like the Book of Common Prayer. If you've ever known about the Book of Common Prayer, it's a book that was once used a lot in the church, and some denominations still use it. The Book of Common Prayer helps give a liturgy, an order for the worship service. The difference with the Psalms is that they are inspired. The Holy Spirit being the author, guiding the psalmist to write these words. They're both useful for public and private worship. You've already experienced that we use them here in our worship service, and they are incredibly helpful at home as well. The psalms give us both the order and the experience of worship to God and how they show that worship is grounded in the Word of God. That the practice of worship in the church is 
a devotion to God as a response to who He is and what He has shared about Himself and what is said in the Psalms of His marvelous deeds. To be clear, the Psalms tell us that worship and even life itself is centered on God. But more than a manual, the Psalms reveal needs that we all have. We all have needs. And it reveals to us God gives the provision for all that we need. John Calvin has called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Every emotion a person experiences is reflected in the Psalms. All the joys and sorrows, every doubt and fear, hopes and confidence are expressed and you can read them in the Psalms. The Psalms is like a mirror into our hearts. It lays open who we are and then it brings us to the footstool of God on His throne. Both His love and majesty on display and given to His people willingly and lovingly. Human experience shaped by what God has revealed about Himself through His Word and given to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Calvin goes on to say, there's no other book in the Bible that expresses God's nature and character and His works, that records so many deliverances, that shows evidence of His fatherly care and provision, that celebrates His splendor and adheres to truth. It's magnificent. 150 psalms for us. All that we read in the psalms is amazing and it's truthful and it's reliable. It's reliable. In short, there is no other book that teaches us the manner of praising God for who He is and what He does. Now, other books of the Bible, they have bits and pieces that are solid for us, showing us God's character and who He is. We need every book in the Bible. But the Psalms, from beginning to end, is chocked full of God's character. It's chocked full of His acts and the glory of our God in a way that the other books just don't, they don't have. The Psalms teach us about God. And they train us to approach Him in His holiness and to embrace His love that was bore on the cross of Calvary. It turns us away from ourselves and onto God's goodness, onto His love and His mercy. I hope you get as much out of the series as I have so far in reading and preparing for it. This this is a rich book. If you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to know why God deserves your worship and your praise, 
If you want to learn to give all that you are to Him, then read the Psalms. I hope this series encourages you to do that. A little bit of background about the book of Psalms. The word Psalms is a Greek word. It's a Greek word that means to pluck strings. This is a book of songs that God's people have sung since the days of the Israelites gathering for festivals and in times of trouble and for worship. They would gather and then with an instrument like a lyre or a harp, it would be used to accompany the singing. Now, not all the psalms are songs. Some of them are corporate prayers. Others are personal prayers. And it's not just one writer. There's one author, the Holy Spirit, but there are multiple authors, David, King David, writing many of the psalms. But there's also Moses. Solomon wrote a few, the sons of Korah, Heman, Ethan, Asaph, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, and then there's some anonymous writers as well. The book of Psalms took 900 to 1,000 years to write. It's a span of almost 1,000 years. Today, what we have in our possession is organized into five books. The books one through five of the book of Psalms. Some think that the five books are in line with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that contained the law of God. And the Psalms, the Psalms have the law in them. The law plays a central role to the book of Psalms. And there are many different kinds of psalms. There are royal psalms clearly pointing to the coming of the Messiah and King. There are penitential psalms, prayers and songs that repent of sin and seek God's grace and forgiveness. There are praise psalms that they're also known as thanksgiving psalms or hallelujah psalms. There are psalms of lament, deep emotional cries to God for His deliverance. And there are imprecatory psalms, deep cries of deliverance to God and punishment for the wicked. Some of the psalms are poetic. Other times they are expressions of raw emotions that the psalmist is having. Pleas to God to act on behalf of the psalmist's life or for the congregation of God's people or for the nation. Today we're looking at Psalm 1, the very first psalm. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Psalm 2. Initially, the Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were combined. And in the New Testament, they're referred to as Psalm 1. Early Greek manuscripts had combined them together. And I'll explain a little bit more about these two psalms in just a moment. So this week, Psalm 1. Lord willing, next week, Psalm 2. And then we'll have a guest preacher for a few weeks. And then for the month of August, 
I'll be preaching on a psalm from each of the five books. Psalm 8, Psalm 72, Psalm 88, 91, and then 144. Now these were not chosen at random. For the first series in the Psalms, I want to show you in each of the books, each of the five books, that Jesus Christ is in fact in the book of Psalms, in every book of the Psalms. The Messiah is in the Psalms. That means that when Jesus, after his resurrection, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he comes to these two disciples, and he interpreted all the Old Testament to them about himself, he did in fact include the Psalms. Because the whole Bible points to Jesus Christ. I want to include that in our first series to introduce us to the Psalms and show you how Christ is the one that fulfills each and every one of them. Now, Some other unique aspects about the Psalms is that it is the largest book in the Bible. It has the longest and the shortest chapters, Psalm 119 and Psalm 117. And it has the most authors. And it's also the most quoted book in the New Testament. About 112 times it's quoted in the New Testament. Now think for a second what that should tell us. If you want to understand the New Testament... If you are someone who reads and who studies, who spends a lot of time in the New Testament, you should also be spending a lot of time in the Psalms to understand what the writer is getting at in the New Testament. We need the Psalms today. Steve Lawson points out that it is said that Martin Luther gained his theology from the book of Romans, but it was the Psalms that gave Luther his thunder. It's the Psalms that gave Martin Luther his view of God. Lawson says, so much so that in preaching the gospel, Luther was ready to fight the devil himself. There's a lot to gain from the book of Psalms. The Psalms helped lay the foundation for the Protestant Reformation, a recovery of the gospel and of our faith. If we're going to have a grasp on the book of Psalms, if you're going to get anything out of this series, if our church is to worship and praise God rightly and share the gospel and make disciples, you need to see, you and I both need to see the eternal value of the Psalms, of being in them, reading them, and applying them to our life. And while parts of the Psalms, as we go through, it's going to seem strange to us. It was a different time. The power of the Psalms lies in knowing God and His character and the people of God in Christ setting our devotion and our affection upon Him. And this is what Psalm 1 introduces us to here. It gives reason to what is said in the rest of the Psalms. That's why this series is good for us. It's a a good reminder 
that God is bigger than our day. That all of life is centered around Him. Now about Psalm 1 and 2, they are introductory psalms. They introduce us to the rest of the book. They tell us some things about God and some things about ourselves. And they set the stage then for the rest of the Psalter. Psalm 1 introduces the key aspects to the book of Psalms. The central parts, the focal points, if you will, of worship and the Christian faith, the theological grounding that's built upon God's Word. And then Psalm 2 takes us from what was said in Psalm 1 and makes clear that both worship and your faith cannot be done on your own. We must take refuge in the Son. Now if you take Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and what I just said, that then is the complete picture of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Right there in Psalm 1 and 2. And so that's where we're starting. This week, Psalm 1. Lord willing, next week, Psalm 2. Now taking a broad overall look at Psalm 1, we see that it gives us three descriptions of the Christian life. But before we dig into the verses and the meaning of the psalm and the application for our life, we need to ask ourselves a question. After hearing Psalm 1 this morning, maybe you read it before, does this psalm describe your life? Does Psalm 1 describe your life? Can you see yourself in Psalm 1? Six verses that have tremendous impact on how we should be living our lives. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, do you see that what it says is the only way to sustain your life? William Plumer, who was alive back in the 1800s, writes this in his commentary about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 incites God's people to the love of righteousness by presenting proper hopes. In other words, Psalm 1 sets everything up for us. It doesn't just tell you that you have a need and God can fulfill it. It introduces us to a God who is righteous and it divides humanity into two groups. There's a side that is wicked and there's a gathering that's found righteous in the judgment. And what is tremendous about the Psalms is is that it never just leaves you with facts. It's not like a news article or a dictionary. Psalm 1 tells you there's two ways to live your life. There's two perspectives of God. One denies Him. One denies Him and lives being consumed with ungodliness, and even mocks God. And it also tells of another way of life that's fruitful and full of goodness. 
It's a life that is set by God and ordered by Him. You and I are thus confronted with a choice. Here in the very beginning of the book of Psalms, you and I can flee iniquity and seek what God has given, or we can give in to ungodliness and come to a dreadful end. You see, this psalm does not tiptoe around the major issue that's facing your life. It, it confronts it head on. It puts it right out there for you. It, it's as clear as can be, and it makes us consider what perspective of God will we have? What side will we be on? So I ask you again, does Psalm 1 describe your life? Or to put it more bluntly, where are you in this psalm? Before we go further and get into the description of the Christian life, think with me, if you will, since the book of Psalms gives us a picture of God and His character, all that He is and what He's done, what He's about, look at what this psalm introduces us to then. If the book of Psalms is this hymnal for God's people, it's a, it's a book of worship with praise and prayers, then those who would rightly worship God must be on the path of delighting in the Scriptures. That's what Psalm 1 tells us. So before we go into the individual Christian, the description of the individual life, and we look at our personal lives, we have to see what the worship of all of God's people is defined by. Our view of God, our worship of Him, can only be right and acceptable if it's grounded in the Word of God, in the instruction, in the law of the Lord. Anything else that's done, even if it's done in the church and there's not a delight for the Word of God, it can't be considered worship because God would not accept it as as worship. The whole book of Psalms is predicated on this. That's why we're given Psalm 1. It's a door to the Psalms. If we're going to pray to God, if we're going to give Him praise and worship, then it must be in response that is built on what He has revealed to us in His Word. That's how important the Bible is to God's people. Today, in many places, both God and the worship of God is being redefined. We can't let that happen. No, God tells us right here in introducing the Psalms that prayer and praise come from a delight and meditation on His Word. And for you and me, that means our worship in this church must be defined by this book. By what God says in His Word. Now why am I discussing public worship before I get into individual lives? I told you Psalm 1 is about the Christian life. Well, it's because it's important to see the bigger picture here. 
And that's knowing what determines worship for God's people as a whole. It's the same for our faith and our lives. It's never just about us as individuals. Life is about the worship of God as a whole. So take Psalm 1, if you will, at the 20,000 foot level, this high view of the psalm, and look at it as a window into the vast collection of the rest of the psalms. It's not just about individual lives. We're going to see that it's about God's love for His people and the people's worship of Him. Now once that's established and you see what it's like on the grand scale, that this is how it's to be for everybody, all of worship is supposed to be this way, then you can ask yourself, how do I fit into this? And that's what we're going to do. The Psalter is for all of God's people, mainly how we worship God. Now knowing that, we can now understand how our personal lives fit into that pattern. Now having that in view, that that's where we need to be as God's people collectively, please look with me, if you will, at how Psalm 1 describes the Christian life. Psalm 1, along with Psalm 2, uses the word blessed. It uses the word blessed. Psalm 1, blessed is the person who's in the law of the Lord day and night, in the words of God all the time. Psalm 2, at the end, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Blessed here literally means happy. Happy. Happy is the person who's in God's Word. Happy is the person who has God's Word in their heart and delights in it, who has it on their mind and thinks upon it all day. The book of Psalms begins with the blessedness or the happiness of those who delight in God and in His Word. Verse 1 makes a clear distinction of those who are not blessed, who are not truly happy. That's the wicked, sinners, and scoffers. They can't be happy. They can't be happy. Their life is a denial of of the true reason for existing. They can't be happy. They are doing the opposite of what they are created for. So there can be no true happiness. A person's walk is the pattern of their life. The counsel of the wicked is not just taking their advice, but it's embracing their aim. It's accepting what they see as important. So the truly happy person cannot be the one who revels in their own sin. They do not embrace it for contentment. Sin is not the goal. They do not join in the shameful mocking of God or disrespecting and taunting of God. And notice the wicked, all sinners, in verse 1, they have a way. They have a way, the way of sinners. But look down at verse 6. That way will perish. 
And it's possible to stand with sinners in verse 1, but look down at verse 5. The wicked will not stand in the judgment of God. This psalm is telling us of a future where our lives will be judged by God. Your life does in fact mean something but not in the way that the world wants you to selfishly look at your life. In the judgment of God, what will your life say about you? What will it say about you? The truly happy person is the one who does not live ungodly and wicked. Nor are they comfortable when God is mocked and scorned. And so the first description of the Christian life is the choice of turning from wickedness. This is the first distinction given here between Christians and non-Christians. Wickedness becomes abhorrent to Christians. The psalmist doesn't leave it for us to define what wickedness and sin are. It's contrasted with the very next verse, and it's the next description of the Christian life. The truly happy, blessed person is the one who delights in the law of God and thinks upon it day and night. So wickedness and sin is anything that does not align with the word of God. And notice what makes the choice of turning from wickedness. What what makes it a happy choice? It comes from being submerged in the Scriptures. It comes from being immersed in God's Word. A heart had to have changed in order to turn from the way of sinners. The Scriptures had to have some effect to become a delight, to see the reality of wickedness and sin. We don't turn from sin and then turn to the Scriptures. No, verse 2 had to happen first in order for verse 1 to be a choice. A delight for God is what makes a person truly happy because that is what we are created for. A delight for God and realize the path then that we're on. Now there's a practical lesson here in verses 1 and 2. On a practical level, not listening to the wicked, not being a part of any wrongdoing or staying away from those who mock God keeps us out of trouble. That's a practical lesson. We don't have to endure the consequences if we will not join in with wickedness in the way of sinners. We'll be happier. But how do we stay out of trouble? How do we stay out of trouble? By learning to obey and delight in what God has said in His Word. Seeing how good His Word is, it becomes a delight to us. Those who despise God, who go against His law and they revel in their sin, they may seem happy 
for a short while, but look at how they end. The wicked will perish. So that's a practical lesson for us. But this goes far beyond just simply avoiding punishment. Verse 2 says it's a true delighting in. It's an appreciating and reveling, not in sin, reveling in God's word. Seeing God's word for what it is, that it gives you joy and satisfaction. It's not a forced obedience to avoid punishment. It is to want God's law because you see it as good. You see it as good. The law describes God's moral character. The blessed, the happy ones, are those who embrace and love the doctrines of God's grace and goodness because it's God who's made the law so good. From His love, from this love of God's law, because it's God who's given it, comes meditation on it. A genuine wanting to understand what God has said. Studying becomes not a bore. Studying God's word becomes a joy for you. It's valuable to you. It's needed. You need it. You crave it. And notice what meditation here is. Oftentimes today we hear the word meditation and it's associated with yoga or Eastern religions and they tell you to empty your mind of all thoughts. Here, true meditation is the filling of your mind with God's Word. And also notice the distinction of the blessed happy person and the wicked person. The difference starts where? The difference starts in the heart and in the mind, which then leads to a different life. And so that tells us, don't focus on our actions. Don't focus about our behavior. It's not about correcting what we do. It's about the inward person. What makes you, you. What drives you. What satisfies you. A delighting in God's word and meditating on it leads to a fruitful life. The result of delighting in and thinking about what God says is becoming like a fruitful tree the psalmist says. But notice this tree is not sprouting on its own. This tree is planted and it's put by water that flows continuously. Do you see that? It continues to receive life from the water. The tree has done nothing by itself. It receives from the water by being placed there. A person like this has received God's grace. They're given what they need that continues to give them that life. Now put your thumb on Psalm 1, if you will, and turn with me to Psalm 92, beginning in verse 12. This is not the only place in the Psalms. There's other places where it talks about being like a fruitful tree. And it's God who does this planting. Psalm 92 tells us why. Psalm 92, beginning in verse 12. The righteous flourish 
like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. This tree will not die. This leaf will never wither. This is the eternal God's doing. This is God's doing. He plants and he waters. He makes you fruitful. And it's all from his word. Those who have been planted by God are in covenant with God. It's a covenant that God has promised to never break. He holds us there by the water. It's he who makes you fruitful. And it's from his word. God upholds you and keeps you because he's true to his word. They prosper, but not always in this life. God's people are promised to prosper, but not always in this life. Other parts of scripture tell us that God's people will be afflicted. We will suffer in this life at times. The prospering here in Psalm 1 is contrasted with what happens to the wicked. And verse 3 tells us, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away, meaning they will not last. They will be done away with. Verse 4 takes it further, saying they will not stand in the judgment or be in the congregation of the righteous. The prosperity that the Christian enjoys is not tied down to this life. It's a better prosperity. When the wicked die, they will, they'll be overcome. Their judgment will be final. The Christian will prosper because of the life-giving water they were given that sprung forth from God's Word. God makes the way. He knows who we really are. He knows our way. The righteous will prosper in his presence. This is the third description of the Christian life. It's blessed because God knows he sets our way. Isn't this very personal? God knows the way of the righteous. This is personal. God makes you righteous and he brings you to this glorious end with him. The God of this universe is not oblivious to us. With those who are blessed to find happiness in God's word, they are known by God. God knows them and approves of them. He loves them. And while Christ is not specifically mentioned in this psalm, Jesus tells us he is the what? He is the way. Jesus is the way. He is that life-giving water. He is the righteous one. The happy, blessed person is the one who's been planted by God and receives Jesus and has him leading you on his way. This way Jesus made by dying on the cross for sin, by being driven away like chaff by the Father. 
receiving the judgment that we deserve and then making the way for us to be included in the congregation of the righteous. You see, the Psalms begin here, pointing us to God who has made the way for the righteous. And He blesses us through His Word because Jesus Christ accomplished what needed to happen for us to be counted in the congregation of the righteous. This psalm tells us that for our church, our songs and our praise, our worship must be grounded in God's Word and must proclaim Christ. And for you personally, For you personally this morning, I ask you once again, does this psalm describe your life? Do you delight in God's word? Do you meditate on it? Have you been planted by the fountain that gives eternal life? Are you considered righteous, not in what you have done, but in God establishing your way through Jesus Christ? Is this you? This morning. I hope it is. Think on this and may you see God's grace here in Psalm 1 and may you delight in Him. Let's pray.